If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. One of the things I was so moved about was, yeah, seeing the kind of emotional connection that people have to these objects. And I don't think that a lot of our contributors were necessarily talking about the destruction of these objects within tone purely of lamentation. That was Kanishk Tharoor discussing his forthcoming radio series, Museum of Lost Objects. The Crusaders watch as the garrison of Acre march out of the city and they're suddenly struck by the fact that these these are really impressive people. They seem, seem more akin to the people that they're used to encountering in the West than they might have imagined. And that was Tom Asbridge describing the Third Crusade. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of February 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Next Monday, the 29th of February, a new series begins on BBC Radio 4, entitled Museum of Lost Objects. Presented by Kanishk Tharoor, the series tells the stories of ten antiquities and cultural sites that have been destroyed or looted in recent conflicts in Iraq and Syria. Some, although by no means all, were deliberately destroyed by the so-called Islamic State, including the Lion of Alat in Palmyra. Here's a clip from the episode that focuses on that lost object. One of the most iconic monuments in the ancient Syrian city of Palmyra was of a lion, a huge 15-ton sculpture that stood in front of the site museum. It became a symbol of the city. You could see the lion on postcards and travel agencies. And for any tourist in Palmyra, no photo set would be complete without a pose with this statue. My son said at that time where... uh quite young and small, and they minute <laughs> next to the lion. Zahid Tajuddin is a Syrian artist who has used the Lion of Alat and other Syrian antiquities as inspiration in the making of his own work. Of course, the size of it is overwhelming, it's huge, and I like the message that comes with it. 2,000 years ago, this statue watched over a temple in Palmyra. It would have loomed over worshippers and pilgrims. Fully twice the height of a human being, the lion had spiralling, somewhat loopy eyes and thick whiskers that blew back angrily along its cheekbones. The lion was clearly a fighter, but it was also a lover. In between its legs, it gently held a horned antelope. The antelope stretched a delicate hoof over the lion's monstrous paws, and it had every reason to feel safe. After all, the lion was a symbol of protection, The mouth is wide open and you can see the teeth. It's menacing. But no, the ancient idea about the lion was to protect 
to mark the entrance to a sanctuary. But no one could protect the lion. The lion was one of the first objects the so-called Islamic State destroyed in their desecration of the city. So that was a clip from Museum of Lost Objects, featuring the presenter Kanishk Tharur, the Syrian artist Zahed Tajuddin, and the Polish archaeologist Michal Gawalowski. To find out more about this fascinating series, I paid a visit to the BBC Studios in London, where I caught up with Kanishk and the series producer Mariam Marouf. I began by asking Kanishk how the idea for the series came about. Well, I think this project came about uh, between in conversation between Mariam and me. Uh, we'd obviously been very shaken by what was happening in Syria, mostly and Iraq, mostly obviously because of the horrific human casualties. But, you know, both of us have been students of the history of the Middle East. We've traveled to the Middle East. And um, we've, you know, we always wanted to do something about the history that, that was being lost. Um, and so we began compiling this, this list of objects. Um, and we had this desire initially to tell the stories of these objects, especially, I mean, I think initially we, I was thinking about them a lot in terms of tracing their historical meanings through time. But then I think as we developed the series, it came clear that we had all these amazing stories to tell um, from people living, you know, in the present. Um, and I think so then this sort of social history emphasis came about in the process of doing a lot of the research. Well, some of it was also um, because there's it's been such a big news story. Like since the start of the Syrian war, people have been talking about stuff that's been lost, stuff that's been looted. And then uh, since the coming of um, the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State, there's been this more of this attention on what's happening in the region. So for me, working in news, um, one of the really big challenges was how do you tell this story which is not going to go away from the news headlines and do it in a slightly more interesting way that is is telling you a story that isn't necessarily from a very academic background because these are places that you either have um, like a lot of the contributors are um, you know professors of ancient history and uh, and I kind of wanted to think about how you get a very different kind of voice telling you a story of why you should care about why these things have have gone, but not to do it in a in a in a sort of typically academic way, but to try and use kind of local histories basically. Sadly, there've been a, a very large number of, of items have been lost in these countries. How do you choose which, which ten to put in your museum? Gosh, I mean this 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 is a, this was a big struggle for us because obviously there were so many different objects um, that we had to to leave behind. My sense was that. You know, we had a longer list, obviously. Um, And my sense was that the ones that produced better stories were the ones that made it into the series, which is not necessarily a reflection on the historical importance of the sites or objects that we excluded, but of the kinds of stories we were able to find around each of these objects. Do you think that's fair? I think that's fair. I think, um, uh, so at first... There was this idea, because I suppose IS have been quite good at sort of claiming propaganda of being the most destructive force there, what became clear is to have um, objects and artefacts that weren't destroyed by ISIS as well. So it was important to kind of have that balance of this is something that has been going on for quite a long time in the modern context and um, and so I think our list changed because we were then thinking we've got to reflect. At first, we were thinking, should we do the world or do we focus on Iraq and Syria? But then it became clear that we want to tell as many in-depth stories and to focus it 
on those two countries because those two countries in itself, like there are 10,000 archaeological sites in Syria alone, I mm-hmm. think. So there's enough material like from those places that can tell you kind of a diverse story. So it can tell you a story about Islamic militancy, but it can also tell you a story about government crackdowns and the the role of regimes Mm -hmm. and also western forces and uh so there's a there's a kind of a modern context of of the war in the region that also informed some of the decisions of like which objects we picked yeah and i think it's important i really to to re-emphasize what mariam just said that you know a lot of the attention that the 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 plight of antiquities in the middle east has been getting is because of the iconoclasm of isis and and other ostensibly religious fanatics. But there's been so much destruction to cultural antiquity that has nothing to do with ISIS. Um, so we have, I would say, I mean, to give to quantify it, I would say about 60% of our show is about objects that have been deliberately destroyed by ISIS, but maybe about 40% of the objects have been destroyed in other ways, be it looting in, in the chaos of, 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 of war, or bombing and other kinds of defacement by, 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 by rebels and so forth. But part of the reason also how our list came about is because Kanish and I, well, I'm not a historian, I'm just a radio producer, and Kanish does have a background in history, but some of the objects in the list came about because we then started talking to specialists in the area. Mm. So Iraqi historians, Syrian historians, um, uh, even Western historians who specialise in the region. And once we started talking to them and then started actually having real conversations with them about, say, for instance, when was the last time you even went to your site? When was the last time you excavated? It became clear that there was a story to tell about um, how, in a way, archaeology has been kind of on the sort of um, front line of some of these wars. And so after talking to some of these people... Some of the contributors even said, why aren't you doing this particular thing or why aren't you doing that? So um, there are a couple of the objects on the list which we hadn't even, it hadn't even occurred to us. They were actual suggestions from people that I talked to, people who were specialists. And uh, some objects that in a way that also we took off the list because other people were saying, well, this story is not better, but this story tells you something different about about the region. So that also helped. Yeah, so as you can see, the, the process of compiling this list was a long one and it went through a lot of changes. And one thing that's, that struck me from the episodes I've heard is just what an incredible, rich history and archaeological record you have in, in Syria and Iraq. I mean, do you think that might surprise some listeners to, to understand just quite how much there actually is in these countries? I mean, I, 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 well, I'm not surprised, but I guess I'm, I suppose I'm a student of this history. Um, but, you know, we're dealing with a region that's been continuously inhabited by sedentary uh, societies for thousands of years, for, for at least 7,000 years. Longer than that, well, really. Aleppo is the oldest, in some say it's the oldest city in the world, or the oldest continuously right. habited city in the world. So it may come as a surprise to listeners, but then, you know, there was, like, part of it was part of the Roman Empire for a really long time, so it's the kind of, it's there in kind of classical history as well, but maybe it's not as to the forefront of maybe... British right, there's, su- there's such a great range of sites that we have. I mean, not only is there quantity, there's a real diversity in the kinds of historical sites that you can um, that you can include. And we haven't just focused on ancient 
um, sort of Mesopotamian era antiquities, we've included everything from you know the oldest. The oldest site is is something is is again quite a surprising, innocuous, a fairly unknown um, site that known as the Tel as Tel Kakur um, in northwest Syria, which we've is you know if you look at it from the outside, it's a fairly dusty looking hump on the earth, but it's. It's a it's it's an archaeological site that's been continuously inhabited for ten thousand years, and I think we wanted to include a site like that because it really shows the multi-layered nature of the history of this region and at the in the real antiquity of it. So that's the oldest site. Then we have sites from um, the Assyrian Empire. We have uh, Roman era sites um, like Palmyra, for example, and then we go slightly more into 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 more modern periods with Christian sites, the Monastery of Mount Elian. Which is fifteen hundred years, which was fifteen hundred years old. Um, we have the minaret. We inc- we've included the minaret of um, the Great Mosque in Aleppo, which was a thousand years old. So you know, there's there's such an enormous and splendid range of architectural history, uh, archaeological history in 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 these two countries that's come under threat. And I think it's again, I'd like to reemphasize that it's not just the sort of pre-Islamic. Biblical era, Greco-Roman era, and then older past that's under threat. It's also the Islamic past, and we've included a lot of objects from that range. As you you mentioned, it you know it's not it's not all Islamic State that have done this. Clearly, things have been done by looters, by you know just bombing and things like that. But I mean, Islamic State seem to be the, deliberately wanting to destroy things, even for no obvious military value to them. What do you think explains that mentality? Why do they want to do this? Well, you know, uh, the destruction. I think there's something we uh, we we mention in the series is that the deliberate destruction of of cultural representations of artworks is a pretty old tradition. You know, we have. Um, I think it's in the first episode in Nineveh that we talk about how when palaces were sacked during the realm of the the, the period of the of the Babylonian and Assyrian empires, the there were obj- there were friezes and statues that were deliberately broken as part of a sign of conquest and victory. So there's a long history of violence to these artworks. Obviously, ISIS's campaign of iconoclasm is quite new. I do think it is very much a product of the 21st century. And there are a lot of people who who have probed into the etiological reasons for why ISIS have been doing this. I think there's, there's a propaganda element. There is surely a, a strain of deep ideological conviction that the destruction of these objects is 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 something they have to do there's a sense of duty there but i think a lot of it also is for the way of sort of sensationalizing their rule and drawing attention to their their power and inflating their own power but you know i just i also wanted to say that one of the things we don't do in this series is spend a lot of time uh, psychologizing ISIS's actions. That's not really what we're interested in doing. There are plenty of, uh, I think, you know, plenty of journalists and scholars who are investigating the reasons for why ISIS is doing what it's doing. Our main interest in this series is really to focus on these objects and tell their stories. But one of the things I can... Um, a few of the Iraqis that we spoke to in the series, um, they were saying that when ISIS went and, um, for instance, blew up Nimrud, um, it felt like a personal attack. And their kind of context for saying that was because Iraq has this really rich history. And Iraq has been in a constant state of war for the last 
almost 40 years, like since the Iran-Iraq war in the early 1980s. And um, one of the contributors that we spoke to, she said that they kind of cling to their ancient past as a as an example that Iraq was once great and good. And so um, one of the things that she talked about is that Islamic State were very conscious in destroying some of these things to kind of erase that and erase that kind of idea that this is something that you were proud of. And so it's there's almost like this whole left in your own kind of feelings of cultural and national identity and uh, you know, so that's kind of there's like a deliberate erasure of of that as well. That some of the Iraqis who we've been talking to um, uh, talk about. One of our contributors talked about how she's Iraqi, and she talked about how because um, she's been so upset about the nature of 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 of, of the violence and sectarian uh, uh, passions in her country in the last twenty years. That when her when her son asks her what can I be proud of as an Iraqi, she turns immediately to the classical past. I mean, to the ancient past, and the achievements of Babylon and Sumer and and then later Assyria and so forth. So 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 it's it's for her, it's 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 where she can root her sense of Iraqiness, and I think part of the way these nation states in the twentieth century distinguished themselves when they were created was by turning to this ancient past, and you saw that in Syria and Iraq, and ISIS is uh, an entity that is deliberately <laughs> opposing itself to the Westphalian system and is trying to is talking uh, talking about the, the the complete fiction of national borders and so one of the one of its targets is these are these these sort of sites um, that have been very symbolic in the nation making in 20th 20th century Iraq and Syria and something else that came through in some of the episodes I heard is that as well as objects being destroyed historical communities are also being destroyed and it feels like the series is almost someone has a tribute to them and trying to remember these often multi-racial or maybe multi-ethnic, multi-religious communities that have suffered just as much as some of the objects have. Yeah, one of my favourite episodes is uh, our episode on the monastery of Mar Elian, which is near um, a town that's sort of in between Damascus and Palmyra called Kariatin, which uh, is... Uh, is a predominantly Muslim town, but has a large Christian or had a large Christian community. And um, you know, one of the wonderful stories we we were able to conjure from this episode about the monastery was the extent to which the the Christian and Muslim communities in this town were completely interlinked. Observes the, you know, the, the 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 monastery contained a tomb um, to the Saint Mar Elian, who had, was also considered a Sufi sheikh and had a, you know his tomb was covered in the green cloth that often you know you would find you find in Sufi shrines, and he was worshipped by Christians and Muslims alike, and you know unfortunately one of the tragedies is not only that has this building been destroyed and the tomb been desecrated, but this community that for centuries lived together, told similar folk tales, uh, shared festivals together, has been probably dispersed at this point. And one of the things about Cariotain was um, Emma Loosley, who is the um, the historian who, who talks about that episode, she was saying that when she heard reports that ISIS were coming to Cariotain, she thought, well, maybe, they'll, maybe they won't touch Marelian because it's revered by Sunni Muslims. But then they, before they even bulldozed the site, I think they actually bulldozed the Muslim cemetery, that w- which isn't in the episode. So they got rid of the cemetery, which you know, contains the grave of Muslims. And then she thought, OK, the, the monastery is not going to stand a chance if that has gone as well. So there's this idea that um, 
also to emphasise that it's not just pre-Islamic things that are that are going. And the nice thing about Karyotain, uh, I think we talk about this in the episode, is that there is a kind of a legend that the Karwani the people of Karyotain are pretty proud of, which as, um, I mean, Kanish can tell you, do you, do you want to tell the story of the legend of Karyotain, the two different tribes? Well, yeah, there's Emma, the, our main contributor in that episode. She's a wonderful speaker, so I'd encourage everybody to listen to the episode and hear it directly from her. But she tells a story that she heard when she, in her years of working and living in Karyotain, that um, in the distant past when Islam had arisen, that the people of the, of the, of, of the area had decided that whoever chose to, to, to follow Islam and leave Christianity... You know, whichever religion proved to be in the majority, to win out, so to speak, that they would protect the minority community, whether it was Christians or Muslims or Muslims and Christians, and um, and that they had an obligation to each other. And that's something that the people in, in Karaitain tell each other and remember f- meaningfully, an ancient uh, story that, that really defines who they were until recently. And there was even a plaque, which I'm afraid we weren't able to include in the episode. That was one of the things we had to leave out. So I think in around the... 15th or 16th century, there was a plaque that was put up by um, an emir of the region. And it was like written in the kind of beautiful old script, uh, Kufic script. So, which actually meant that none of the contemporary residents of Karyotain could actually read it because it was so kind of old fashioned. And it said that the emir offered protection to anyone who tried to harm any of the pilgrims who came to Karyotain and there was nothing, there was, there was no religious distinction there either because you had Muslim pilgrims, you had Christian pilgrims, you even had, I think, Jewish pilgrims. There's a star of to, David in graffiti there. There's a star of David on the on the tomb. So um, there, there was this, so there's long been the sense of um, the people who come here have been protected and there's no, um, there's kind of like a limited distinction of of religion i guess and we should also say that the this sort of diverse somewhat cosmopolitan uh, milieu that we've sort of conjured just now in talking about this village is something that you can find um, going back millennia in the middle east you know we have when you talk about palmyra um, the nature of its worship was completely shot through with all sorts of traditions and peoples so it's definitely a feature of the region that there people that there were people living together and all different different peoples living together at all times we also don't want to sort of idealize it though as well i mean that the karyatain especially had its problems it was it was one of the poorest regions in syria it was a kind of a end of the road kind of place to go to in some ways so and that's also one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about it is just because it just it's it doesn't have the the kind of the glamour that you think of as as Palmyra which is this big site which generated a lot of money through the tourist industry no one came to Karyatain it wasn't like it wasn't on your kind of must if you if you were a tourist going to Syria before 2011 you know, it probably wasn't going to be on your must-see of, like, your itinerary. But that doesn't make it any less kind of important to talk about. But I suppose one of the things we want to try and do in the series is that these aren't just the big money sites in the regions that we want to try and talk about as many different places, which also had troubled... They weren't the kind of perfect um, archaeological site in a way. And one of the challenges of doing a series like this is the places you're talking about, some of the people you're talking to are living in a war zone. I mean, how difficult did that make it to make this series? 
Well, it meant that we couldn't go there, first of all. So it meant that a lot of our contributors were um, outside of Iraq and Syria. But there are people, I mean, one of our main contributors is someone who is who is still in Syria. And uh, she has an incredibly powerful story. And that's the daughter of Khaled al-Assad, who was the um, director of antiquities at Palmyra, who was who was beheaded by ISIS. And she is in she's in a safe place. But um, um, it, it was amazing talking to her because, uh, you know, she hasn't you know, she's 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 still in Syria, you know, she ha- and she hasn't really told her story to anyone yet. Um that's a really amazing story that we have in the in what will probably be the second episode of the series. This is a, a woman who's been na- her name is Zenobia. She was named by her father after the famous Queen of Palmyra, and so we tell the story of the destruction of the city, uh, of the monuments in the city by ISIS through her narrative of what happened when when the city fell to ISIS. Something that comes through, particularly with that story, is how people, some people living there, are actually having to choose between saving their own lives and saving some of these monuments. Is that something that you talk about much? Well, to a certain extent, we do talk about that a little bit in in the episode with Zenobia al-Assad because of the fact that Khaled al-Assad, her father, he had... I I don't know whether he was really able to flee, but he he certainly gave his life to to trying to save the antiquities. But there are... I mean, there have been a lot of stuff that's talked about, the kind of the monument men of Syria, like Mm -hmm. that these archaeologists trying to go in so again we're trying to do less of of that and we're also I mean we've also had some great stories of um, places in Iraq where um, at at one point we were going to do a whole episode about shrines and there's one shrine in Iraq where the locals formed a human chain around this particular shrine to stop IS um, coming in from bulldozing it and and they and they turned away, but then in the night they came and bulldozed it anyway. So there've been some incredible stories of people who have gone pretty far to try and save these antiquities. But I think what we're trying to trying to do is um, try and have an element of that. But it's it's more about not happier memories, but but the kind of the more surprising stories that you have about some of these objects. So in the Nineveh episode, um, Lamia Al-Ghilani, she talks a bit about um, aspects of the winged bull, which is this um, kind of quite ferocious um, monument to Assyrian architecture. And she talks about how there was a game that was carved onto the base of the bull. And in fact, you can see that game. If you go to the British Museum, um, there is a winged bull um, that's from Khursabad. And you can see exactly the same game. And um, so you'd have these guards who'd stand there and they'd be really bored and they'd be playing games with each other. And so... And one of these games is basically a kind of graffiti on these ancient monuments. On these ancient monuments. And in fact, they apparently, so that game in Arabic is called Dana, and they still play it in Mosul. So when Lamia was telling us that story, she said that when they discovered that game, they only, because you have to remember that, so Nineveh was excavated in the in the 1840s, but they were still uncovering things of Nineveh. So this game was actually only discovered probably within the last maybe 40 years or something. And so um, she was saying that when they went back to um, the other Iraqi archaeologists and were like, we found this game, they're like, oh, yeah, we still play it in Mosul. Like two and a half thousand years later, people still play this game. So there is the element of people who die to you know, try and save these things. But we also kind of want to try and talk about some of the more playful elements that you have, because we, you know, you kind of want to celebrate 
what these things once were and what they meant to people, as well as having a degree of kind of lamentation, but not being too morbid about it. Is that really the idea of the Museum of Lost Objects, that it's not, it's not just a lament, it, it's celebrating what these things are, so people can listen to these episodes and remember these objects so they aren't forgotten, even though they've been destroyed? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it's especially when we are talking about objects that are being lost or destroyed in the context of tremendous human suffering, that it's not, I think it's a little bit tricky to be sentimental, too sentimental about the loss of these physical objects, as beautiful and important as they are. Um, and I mean, obviously, Marim and I are both very affected by this destruction. But I think we're trying to keep that tone away from the series. Um, and I think it's, it's really, it's really important to, to let the voices that we've count, that we found um, really conjure these objects, put them in their social context, talk, you know, I think we have so much, what I love about this series is the kinds of granular human stories we have, you know, about, you know, everything from a child bicycling to the museum to feed his father lunch every day to, uh, gosh, so it's Zenobia's slightly more epic and, and haunting story of the loss of her father but in, even, in even, Palmyra. But even with the Palmyra episode, um, we we talked to a Syrian archaeologist whose mother was born in the temple. So, yeah. um, you know, not many people realise that the temple was actually... The Temple a, of Bell. The Temple of Bell, sorry. Um, the Temple of Bell was um, a temple 2,000 years ago. Eventually it became a church and then a mosque. And actually it had been a mosque much longer than it had been a temple. And then in from the 20s to the 30s, up to the 40s, the French colonials and the newly formed Syrian state um, evicted the villagers who lived within the ruins of the temple. I mean, they were like sheep herders and yeah. nomads. And one of the, the, the uh, Salam al-Kuntara, she's a Syrian archaeologist, who incidentally is probably now going to have to get refugee status to stay in the US because she can't return to Syria. Her, her grandfather was appointed to Palmyra as a policeman. And um, her mother ended up being born in the temple. And that's, you know, you can hear an academic saying this is why Palmyra was important. But what we want to try and do is to actually have someone saying, well, my mother was born there, which is why it's important to me, which is a story that you don't often hear. No, no, definitely. And, and actually, something that comes through, even though some of these stories are just incredibly depressing that what these things have happened, actually, the series isn't that downbeat, is it? Do you... Do you think That's there good is to some, know. <laughs> there, there is something inspiring about these stories. There's some, some, maybe some cause for hope that people do care so much about these objects and they mean so much to people. I, I was, you know, in because I think part of the production of this of this show is also a kind of discovery for us. You know, we just we're discovering so much as we put the show together. And one of the things I was so moved about was, yeah, seeing the kind of uh, emotional connection that people have to these objects. And I, I don't think people, that a lot of our contributors, were necessarily talking about the destruction of these objects in tone purely of lamentation. I think there's, there is, a, I mean, there is obviously a kind of nostalgia that can drift into, into grief, but it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's one, of, it's one of great love and affection and, and, and humility when we think about the, the, the wonders and complexities of the past. And I think that's what we're trying to achieve with the show. Um, we're not trying to make you sad. We're trying to make you interested in what's happened, what's come before us. And we just hear on the news all this really terrible news from uh, Iraq, perhaps in Syria even more, all the time. Do you think this might perhaps give people a slightly different view of these countries uh, about all the incredible things that they've produced and the potential they might have for the future? 
I think one of the great things about this series is the is the the extent to which most almost all of our voices are Iraqi and Syrian voices, um, and I think for certain audiences that might be a refreshing and new. Uh, discovery to hear people to, to hear Iraqis and Syrians talk about their own history, and yeah, so I hope that there will be a degree of nuance and a degree of familiarity that people who don't know the region and don't know the history of the region uh, will come into by hearing these stories being told by Iraqis and Syrians themselves. That was Kanishk Tharoor and Mariam Marouf talking to me about their new series, Museum of Lost Objects. Episode 1 airs on Monday the 29th of February on BBC Radio 4 at 12 noon. And from the same day, the series will also be available as a podcast, downloadable anywhere in the world. Museum of Lost Objects will be preceded by a documentary, also on BBC Radio 4, entitled The Obliterators. There, historian Simon Sharma will seek explanations behind the deliberate destruction of priceless antiquities in the Middle East in recent years. The Obliterators airs on Sunday the 28th of February at 1.30pm. Before our next interview, I'd like to mention that the March edition of BBC History magazine is now on sale. Inside this month's issue, there are articles on the Easter Rising, the dark side of Elizabethan England, sex under Henry VIII, and history's most delicious dishes, among other things. You can get hold of our March edition now in all good news agents in the UK and our many digital formats. Print editions outside the UK may take a little longer to arrive in the shops. Now, sticking with our Middle Eastern history theme, our next interview is with Tom Asbridge, a medieval historian at Queen Mary, University of London, who specialises in the Crusades. Early in March, he's organising two events themed around the Third Crusade and Saladin, who led the Muslim forces in the clash against European armies. I caught up with Tom a couple of weeks ago to get the lowdown on one of the most dramatic episodes in crusading history. First of all, can you just give us a bit of background to the Third Crusade? What was the situation in Europe and also in the Near East at this point? So the Third Crusade is triggered primarily from the Western European perspective, catastrophic events in the Holy Land. Uh, so we're now in the in the 12th century. Uh, the year is 1187. And on the 4th of July in that year, the Muslim ruler of the Near East, a man called Saladin, has risen to power, managed to unite the Muslim world to a pretty significant degree, and scores a stunning victory against the forces of the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem in what's known as the Battle of Hattin, he then follows up that victory by sweeping up most of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem and t- actually taking control. This is the, the real key, retaking control of Jerusalem, the holy city, on the 2nd of October, 1187. And those pair of events, the Battle of Hattin, this, this terrible disaster for the West and the, the loss of Jerusalem, is like a, it's like a seismic event. It's like an earthquake in terms of um, the West's perception of the situation in the world. Um, the legend has it that the Pope of the day actually died of a heart attack when he heard the news of the defeat at Hattin. So shocking was it. And what it leads to is the preaching of a, a massive new crusade, what we call the Third Crusade, which is going to last over three years. It's going to involve some of the key leaders of the age. And most notably, I guess, from our perspective, it's going to be led in the final elements by Richard the Lionheart, Richard the First, King of England. How would you go about putting a crusade together, especially when 
a lot of these European kingdoms would have often been at war with each other and may not have been very cooperative. Yeah, that's one of the really big challenges is actually trying to bring, if not peace, at least a degree of rapprochement between major rivals and two of the, the big armies that are going to go on this crusade. One, it's a little bit misleading to call it the English crusade because the King of England at this point controls a large swathe of what we would think of as modern day France in the form of the Angevin realm. That's Richard. Or in the first instance, it's his father, Henry II, and then it's Richard I. But their major opponent is the King of France, Philip Augustus, who's also going to be a crusade leader. And one of the, the reasons they're so delayed before leaving Europe is because they, they're not willing to leave one of the others behind. It's essentially takes a huge amount of time to organize a departure so that they're literally leaving at the same time because neither of the others trust them to, to behave themselves while someone else is away on crusade. Who, who sort of took overall charge of the crusade? Who was it saying, we're going to have a crusade, I want you all to come to it? So the crusade is, is called by the papacy. The papacy issues um, what technically we call a papal bull or a papal encyclical, a document announcing this new crusade, and it's broadcast across Western Europe. The three major centres of, of recruitment are uh, the Angevin world, the English kingdom and the Angevin world, the, the French world, the dynasty that we call the Capetians. But actually, perhaps most importantly, in, in the early stages, it's also the German Empire and the German emperor, a man called Frederick Barbarossa, who decides to go on this crusade. And I think one of the really fascinating things about this expedition is that everyone would have expected Frederick Barbarossa to be the overall leader of this crusade when it reached the Holy Land. He's the elder statesman. He's the man who has a proven track record as a military commander and as a political negotiator. And he has great success in the early stages of his crusade. He's the only one to take a land route. He tries to go overland through Eastern Europe and across modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And that goes remarkably well. Um, unfortunately for uh, Frederick and for the German crusade, he then drowns rather ignominiously while trying to cross a, a minor river in eastern Asia Minor. And it's suddenly he is uh, like a, a chess piece plucked off the board and the whole situation changes. And that's one of the things that leaves an opportunity for Richard the Lionheart to emerge eventually as the overall leader of this crusade. At what point did the Muslim world get wind that this crusade was coming and, and how did they react to this incoming threat? That's a really good question because I personally, I think Saladin must have known almost within days of taking Jerusalem in 1187, he must have started to be conscious of the fact that a, a fight back is come from the West. There is going to be inevitably some form of response. And part of his task is to try to conquer as much of the crusade, remaining crusader states as he can to prepare the Muslim world for this onslaught. And... Uh, and also crucially to try to keep the Muslim world invigorated by the idea of holy war. A lot of, uh, a lot of the unity that he'd been able to usher into the Near Eastern and Middle Eastern world had been based on the idea of reconquering Jerusalem. But once the holy city's back in Islam's hands, then there's always going to be a question of how are you going to keep your troops in the field month after month, year after year. We certainly know um, he was afraid of Frederick Barbarossa above all. So we, we have um, surviving correspondence. We have surviving documents that indicate both the level of trepidation he has about this great European figure approaching and the fact that he actually sends some of his troops to try to prevent Frederick from approaching. Now, those troops in the end don't have to don't have so much of a, a job to do because of Frederick's death. But that that distraction arguably weakened Saladin's uh, position in the early stages of the crusade, nonetheless. 
And so what were the actual aims of the crusading armies? Well, arguably, the ongoing and underlying um, aim is always going to be the retaking of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the crusade starts in a really fascinating manner, and I, I would argue that it's uh, perhaps the least studied and most intriguing element of this whole expedition. And that's the, it starts with the man who has been king of Jerusalem, the man who's been defeated at Hattin and recently released by Saladin, deciding essentially to, to carry out a suicidal attempt to retake a key port in what had been the kingdom of Jerusalem, a port known as Acre. It's now in the uh, northern part of modern-day Israel. This is deep in Muslim-held territories, deep in Saladin's territories, garrisoned by Saladin's forces, and every expectation would be that this attempt by the king of Jerusalem, a man called Gila Lusignor, is going to fail spectacularly. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the most insane thing that you could attempt to do. But against all the odds, he manages to lead some troops down to try to besiege the city, and even when Saladin brings the relief army, the crusading armies are able to dig themselves in around Acre. And most, most significantly, because they're able to have access to the sea, this is a port, they're able to get constant resupply and reinvigoration by reinforcements. The crusaders managed to eke out a survival position around Acre for months and months. And then eventually this, this siege lasts the best part of two years and finally culminates in the conquest of Acre. So the first target of the of the crusade is actually to get a foothold back in Palestine, to get Acre, and then from there, potentially, to move on to Jerusalem. What do you make of the role of Saladin during this crusading period? Because obviously he's, he's a figure that still attracts a lot of attention today. For me, it's it's not the high point of his career in terms of success. So the, the glorious achievements of Saladin's uh, era have to be targeted, I think, in 1187, the victory at Hattin, the recovery of Jerusalem. But in some ways, I find this uh, one of the most fascinating areas of his life, because in Richard the Lionheart, the man who eventually emerges as the leader of this crusade, I think he is encountering a very inter interesting, well-matched opponent. Arguably, they are perfectly matched opponents. And to some extent, both men's legend, both men's almost mythical presence as figures in the medieval world and in the study of medieval history revolve around the fact that they confronted one another uh, in the course of the Third Crusade. Of course, neither men, neither of them ever met face to face. They may have perhaps glimpsed each other across the wide expanse of a, of a battlefield, but they never spoke to one another. They never dealt with one another directly. But as uh, protagonists in this war, I think both men were, were facing very, very significant opponents. And that, that's, that's why I think the Third Crusade is an interesting entry point into understanding Saladin's skills, some of his potential weaknesses, and to some extent his psychological makeup. How violent was the behaviour of, of both the Crusader and Muslim forces, and, and how would that have compared to medieval warfare elsewhere? This is exactly what I'm uh, researching at the moment. So it's a very apposite question. So the, the underlying argument that I'm presenting in, my, in what's going to be my next book uh, is to try to contextualize crusading warfare and to by no means to downplay it and by no means to offer some kind of uh, apologia for the crusade from an ideological perspective, but rather to try to understand it as a medieval phenomenon. And there are certainly moments where crusading warfare can be represented as extreme, but in other respects, I don't think it always sits outside the norms of medieval experience. There is one particularly significant moment in the crusade, which is notorious, which is, it's intriguing, it's very uh, contested, and it is a, it is a high point in, in terms of a form of atrocity. Uh, and this moment comes after Acre is captured, 
the city actually surrenders in the end to the crusading forces. And at this point, they're led by both Richard the Lionheart and Philip Augustus, the King of France. And a deal is struck whereby a certain amount of money, a number of prisoners, and also a very important relic, the relic of the True Cross, are due to be returned to the Crusaders. And on that, on that basis, they say they will release the prisoners they've taken when Acre falls. And in the course of the summer of 1191, protracted negotiations play out. And in the end, those negotiations falter. And as a result, Richard the Lionheart takes the decision to execute somewhere between 2,600 and 3,000 Muslim prisoners outside Acre uh, on the 20th of August, 1191. And that moment is, a, is an extremely contentious moment. The reasons why he did this, how unusual this was, how the Muslim world reacted are all questions um, that I'm deeply immersed in at the moment. Often nowadays, the Crusades are presented as a kind of clash of civilization. Is it the case that the soldiers would have seen each other as more of an other than they would if fighting Europeans or, again, for the Muslim side, if they were fighting other Muslim forces? Or actually, would it not make much difference? That's another excellent question. I think the Third Crusade pays testament to both sides of that argument. So we can certainly see examples of presentation of the uh, the other side, whether it's Muslims thinking about their Latin Christian opponents or vice versa, of them imagining them as a very different species, a very different breed, almost an alien subhuman that they can confront. But at the same time, we see fairly uh, strong evidence of respect, of familiarity uh, developing, particularly in the course of this long siege. It's almost akin to trench warfare during the First World War. The two sides start to get to know one another. There are sort of interplay and familiarity. And there's a really striking uh, moment in one of the eyewitness accounts of the Third Crusade when the siege comes to an end. Finally, the fighting almost interruptively, suddenly stops. And the Crusaders watch as the garrison of Acre march out of the city. And they're suddenly struck by the fact that these these are really impressive people. You know, they've, they seem, seem more akin to the people that uh, they're used to encountering in the West than they might have imagined. So I think there's there's both sides of the argument present when you look at the Third Crusade. There are there's clearly heightened moments of conflict and elements of hatred, but there's also elements of familiarity. Who would we say, if either side, would emerge victorious from the Third Crusade? It's a very finely balanced question. So what the Crusade absolutely does not lead to is the reconquest of Jerusalem by uh, Richard or his crusading army. So Richard actually makes uh, not just one, but two marches on the Holy City, first in the, the autumn and winter of 1191, and then again in the summer of 1192. And on both occasions, he's forced to turn back. Arguably, from a, from a purely military and strategic perspective, that was perhaps the right decision. Um, and in many ways, I would argue that particularly in the first advance, what he's actually looking to do is apply military pressure and seek to bring Saladin to a negotiated settlement. But neither of those advances or feints actually work. I also think that Richard has somewhat misunderstood the challenge that's before him because that kind of move, that kind of advance on Jerusalem, in a, in a Western perspective, if, it was, if you're carrying out a normative war with soldiers that weren't primed by the ideas of crusade, of the redemptive force of reaching Jerusalem, they might have you know, been absolutely fine with the idea of retreating once you've marched to within a day of their target. But when you do that to a crusading army, the damage done to morale is really, really significant. It's deeply felt. And so in the end, the crusade 
uh, is concluded by what's called the Treaty of Jaffa, which is largely a draw. The the only element I think that suggests a slight, and, and I mean this really, really slight advantage to Saladin in the final analysis, is that Richard and Saladin's emissaries argue long and hard over who is going to have control of a particular port, a port called Ascalon. And that's important because it's the, the gateway to Egypt, which has been the, the seat of Saladin's power for a long time. Richard sees that as his last significant gain, potential advantage that he might have out of this crusade. And he lobbies long and hard for it to remain as a fortified site. But in the end, he has to concede the fact that this will be, its defenses will be raised. And essentially, again, it's like a, it's like a piece on the chessboard being removed. It means that Ascalon can be used by neither force neither army successfully. In one way, that's a draw, but it's a draw that favours um, Saladin in the final analysis, I would argue. And I, I suppose we can see that the, the Western side weren't totally happy with the result because there were then several more crusades in, in later decades. Yeah, absolutely. The, the history of crusading continues in the Near East well into the 13th century. The uh, crusader states don't fall until 1291, and there are a succession of further crusades, many of which actually do target Egypt in the 13th century. So we can see this sense that that Egypt is a lingering goal for crusading armies stretching on into the, the subsequent decades. You're running a symposium about Saladin and the Third Crusade coming up in, in not too long. What are the big discussion points for, for historians nowadays in this subject? The events that I'm running, they're on the 3rd and the 4th of March in London. So one is a, a big public lecture. Uh, it's the 2016 Islam and the West lecture given by Professor Carol Hillenbrand, uh, a real expert on the crusading history, but primarily from the Islamic perspective. She's talking about Saladin, the man and his myth. And I think there is an enduring sense in which Saladin as a figure is a hot topic in terms of research. Arguably, one of the biggest advances that's coming uh, on the horizon is a team of scholars working in, in Lebanon. It's been, has been working for a long time now to try to produce a printed version of Saladin's correspondence, essentially the, the letters that are produced by him that, that offer in large part the official version, the, the official politically controlled account of how he disseminates his, his experiences, what his views are, how he's trying to garner support from uh, other parts of the Muslim world. That material is extraordinarily useful in terms of giving us a new vision of Saladin's approach to rule. So that's going to be one of the big things coming in, in future years. I'm, I'm particularly interested in this question of, of violence and in terms of understanding the Acre massacre and the way it's been treated by historians, both in the medieval period and through to the modern world. And another area that's really, really intriguing and that uh, is represented by one of our speakers at the symposium. So that after the lecture, we're, on the 4th of March, we're holding a one-day symposium in the Institute of Historical Research, which is, as the lecture is, it's open to, to anyone who wishes to come. And one of the speakers there, Professor Linda Patterson, works on a really intriguing element of crusade evidence. And this is what we call crusader songs, songs written in now what we would regard as uh, modern day France, either in northern French or in the southern French language, Occitan or Occitan. And these songs give you, they're not, the, they're not quite the politically refined or the church line on what crusading might be, what it might be represented as, why it might be beneficial. It's much more a celebration of how knights and chivalric culture thought about crusading activity. She's presenting her research on these songs, and I think that's another avenue that gives us a new window into the mind of crusaders. How is the Third Crusade nowadays viewed in the Islamic world? Well, I think 
this is another reason why holding this symposium uh, and the lecture and, and essentially off the, off the back of these two events, establishing a new international network focusing on the study of the Third Crusade is so important. Because the Third Crusade and, and, and Saladin as a figure are often used as some of the key touchstones when the Crusades are identified as a, a connection between the medieval world and the modern dynamic of what's happening in the near and Middle East today. I also think one of the things that's that's most striking, and to, and to me, the, you know, the really critical explanation of why I think the Third Crusade is such an extraordinarily fascinating campaign and phenomenon to study, is because unlike most Crusades, we actually have both sides of the story surviving in really detailed form in our sources. So we don't just have reams and reams of Latin or Western European texts that describe the, these encounters during the Third Crusade. We have really, really full, detailed Arabic accounts. And that's if you compare that to something like the First Crusade, the First Crusade has virtually no Arabic uh, contemporary testimony, whereas for the Third Crusade, we're really, really well informed. That allows us to look at both sides of the argument, but it also allows us to try to promote one of the things that's really deep in my heart in terms of an ambition for Crusader studies in the future, and that's to establish much stronger links to scholars who are working in predominantly Muslim countries. There's a really significant lack of interplay and, and dialogue between people working in what might be broadly defined as the Western tradition and those who are studying in predominantly Muslim countries. That's, a, that's to the real detriment of our subject area, I think. And the Crusades generally need that, but the Third Crusade is a, is a classic opportunity to develop that kind of dialogue. And that's why we've got uh, two scholars coming from Qatar to speak at the symposium. That was Tom Asbridge of Queen Mary, University of London. You can find out more about the Third Crusade Network and the events at thethirdcrusade.org. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Holy Roman Empire and the great landscape designer, Capability Brown. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.